Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. We're thrilled to have you here, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be uh, entering into a public conversation with someone who is brand new to my life because of her amazing book. And I cannot wait to explore this book with you. It is worth having in your library. Uh, we will put flashes up about it at the beginning and at the end, and also places where in Atlanta you can go and pick it up uh, today. Uh, it's at the Cathedral Bookstore and at Karis Books. So uh, we're really, really thrilled. But first, let me welcome Anamalaika Tubbs. So glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. It's a pleasure, and thank you for everybody who's listening. Oh, it's wonderful. So let me get into it. I, literally, my heart is beating fast, and I've got, to, I've got to tell you why I was so drawn to your book. So I don't remember where I saw the first notice about it. I haven't even, I hadn't even read a review, but when you said three mothers, and then you talked about the mothers of whom, those are, to quote James Cone, my trinity. I mean, you want to go to Malcolm Martin and James Baldwin for truth about America. Yeah. And in the case of Martin and James Cone for, I mean, I, I, and Jimmy Baldwin, for sure, you want to know the truth about Jesus and the truth about Christianity, mm -hmm. as opposed to a distorted view of God and Jesus. And then the biggie, biggie, biggie is mothers matter. Mothers matter. I mean, my father has an institution named after him, and it was my mother who formed the core of my soul. He taught me mm -hmm. how, all sorts of things, but, oh, it was my mother. So I said, oh, yes, I want to read something. Uh, and, and, and another thing, <laughs> frequently um, I have this joke. If someone really acts out, I think to myself, or I'll say to my wife, their mother didn't teach them how to do. And uh, <laughs> it's a Southern phrase about how it really matters what mama you have. So mm -hmm. it is with all of that. And then I dug into it and I did something I've never done. I did just a call, cold call to your publisher to say, please, please, please. And then I started making my case, like I was arguing my case before the Supreme Court. And I, <laughs> I broke through and I'm so thrilled to be talking with you. I'm so thankful that you invited me and thank you so much for the generous, the compliments and the generous introduction to the work. You're very, very welcome. So I wanna say two or three things, first about the structure of the book and ask you to kind of speak about that. And then I'd love to get into the lives of these three amazing women. I'm just so grateful for how you layer this book and interweave like a beautiful tapestry, the lives of these women with the history of America. And you give us the experience as readers 
of the reality that you can't understand the American experience unless you understand Black American experience. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it was really important to me. I had several goals for the book before I started writing it. I sat, set out and said, these are all the different things I want to accomplish. But one of them was that it would be a view of American history through the eyes of Black women and that you would see it so differently. And maybe these events that you'd heard about, like the Great Migration, like the Harlem Renaissance, each world war. But when you see it through the eyes of someone that you're getting to know as the narrative develops, we better understand how each of these moments impacted people differently, depending on their levels of access to resources, to education, um, whatever their identities were. And I was really happy with how it turned out that it's also a history lesson for all of us beyond these three women's lives. It's also for us to better know our country. Truly, truly. So I really want everybody to have this a book in their library. Uh, it is a wonderful, fascinating engagement with three amazing women, three amazing human beings and the impact that they have on subsequent generations, as well as receive a legacy into their own lives that they pass on. Just yeah. amazing story right there. And uh, it's a great history text. So Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank so you. Uh, the next theme I want to just raise is I got so excited that all the way through, there's this theme that conditions are never as powerful as the responses to the conditions. Mm -hmm. And in the life of each one of these persons and their families and their offspring, and in some cases, I love the fact that we get to see grandchildren toward the end of the, the book. <laughs> <laughs> these these women are making responses to amazingly horrific conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that is so an essential part, really, of the Black American experience, unfortunately, that we have been forced to respond over and over again to these daily attacks against our humanity, but that those are not the things that have defined us. It has instead been our response and this pushback against being told that we are less than, being told we deserve less than, and knowing the opposite for ourselves and for our children. And I think in Black motherhood, you see this so clearly that you hold your children near and dear to you, you know how special they are, you know how brilliant they are, but you're also aware that the country that they are born into will not see them the same way that you do. And instead of accepting this kind of supposed inferiority, you say, no, we're gonna change these systems around us to see us the way that we know we deserve to be seen. And this is why so much progress has happened for the nation by Black people saying, we're going to help you see us the way we all deserve to be seen on this earth. And it's incredibly inspiring. And I think through Black motherhood, you see how politicizing it is to affirm our humanity over and over again, despite the many attacks that are waged against us. I loved uh, it. That hit me most deeply, I think, in the chapter about marriage and family. I, I, by the way, I love all the different chapter titles, the way you've, you really layer this thing in a, in a really kind of dramatic way. And I, I want to get to these people's lives. And you're saying, Ed, you need to know <laughs> about what led to these people's lives first. And then I think, oh, thank you, Anna, for taking me through that. But, <laughs> <Thank you>. uh, <laughs> there was there was one point where I, I've forgotten, uh, and I don't want to take up time finding my notes where it was really, really clear. I mean, obviously these women are extremely resourceful 
on the level of their spirituality, their soul, their their uh, intelligence, their their gifts. And we'll get into the kind of three gifts of these women. Yeah. Um, and you talk about how one of the resources are these families, their relationship. You know, some marriages are okay and some are really tough. And then, but these children and their mothers, um, just thank you for that as, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something that you can think of the family as the first society that we all enter into as a sociologist. You know, when I think about this for my dissertation, that chapter has an entire analysis of how the family is the first place where we are socialized. And you think about how that allows the children to see, okay, sometimes there's conflict, sometimes there's disagreement, sometimes, you know, we have to bring people together and understand different perspectives. And in all three families, there's very unique stories where the mothers and fathers come from very different backgrounds. In all three cases, the mothers were better educated than the fathers. They had more access to resources. The fathers were all from the deep south and they were all running away from the violence that they'd witnessed their entire lives. And you see the balance that these women bring to the men who in many ways are healing themselves and are on a process of trying to reconcile with the fact that they live in a nation that doesn't allow them to be the men that they think they're supposed to be. And I'm also analyzing the ways in which Black families reinvent the notion of family and reinvent the notion of gender roles, because we've been forced to, we've been pushed aside from the hegemony, not to get too theoretical about it, but being distant from that has allowed us to have more liberatory practices in our families and our the ways in which we raise our children to be transformational thinkers and to think of the world in a new way and in a different way. And that's definitely the case within the family unit as well. And, the, and, then, and then the integration of resistance and love keeps showing up in every page. Every I mean, single these women are resistors and they know how to love and I mean just speak to all of that please. I think especially in the case of Burtis Baldwin this was her identity it was entirely about love and finding the light and confronting the darkness but being able to move past it so that you could find healing and so her resistance her form of resistance and even I actually don't think she would have called herself an activist but I 100% call her an activist because of the love that she was able to show the forgiveness um, not only after being born and losing her mother when she was a child and maybe even losing her mother in childbirth um, she has to deal with this tragedy and she becomes a person who thinks about okay despite what might happen to you in life, despite how hard things may, may get or may become, what do you do to move forward? How do you focus on letting go of pain and letting go of hatred? And even in her marriage where she has an abusive partner um, who is incredibly abusive towards her as well as her children, especially James Baldwin, she says, there's only so much I can control. And the thing that I can control is the love that I show to my children so that when they're beyond my the walls of my home, they show that love to other people. And even in letters, she wrote them. So <laughs> in terms of talking about love and the resistance that comes through that ability to find it no matter what, Burtis is a perfect example of this. And we see it, I think, in, in James Baldwin's writing very clearly. And, and we will return to her and these other 
two women. However, at this point, I do want to just invoke and, and what's in my mind is you're quoting her grandson, Trevor, speaking at her funeral. Yeah. Do you remember what it what he said about love and his grandmother? He said that we all struggle to love the way that Burtis taught us to love one another, love one another. And basically, I'm paraphrasing now, but that we're still trying to live up to what she wanted for us in terms of that love. And everyone who I spoke to who knew Burtis, um, even in anything that was written about her, and there was very little, she was the hardest one for me to find information on. Love came up constantly over and over and over again and so this is really what she embodied and she spoke about and she wrote about really beautifully and she allowed others to change their perspective of not only what they were going through in their own lives but what was happening in each decade that she lived through in this nation yeah and and i do want to come back and talk about her gift of language and how obviously that was imparted to her son james baldwin but I, I don't want to leave this moment without uh, remember, I'm remembering that, didn't you say, didn't you write that every year she would write these birthday cards to people and they would be little, and this is my language, little homilies on love. Absolutely. That was her, that was her talent, really, that she was a writer. She was brilliant with words and she had this power over language and she used that to translate this idea that she had around love uh, to her loved ones. And they would travel around the world following her descendants. Um, she would write obviously to Jimmy when he was in France. She would write to all of her children. She had eight of them. And she continued this tradition with her grandchildren and her grandchild, Trevor, who I quote, um, and was an incredible resource for me throughout this entire process and still is a close contact now. Um, she, he said that she never forgot a birthday, which he thought was incredible because she had obviously all these children, all these grandchildren. She got to meet a few of her great-grandchildren and she didn't keep a calendar. She just somehow knew <laughs> all of the important dates in their lives and used this as an opportunity to, again, remind them of the most important thing, which was love. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to take us back out of one person and get back to, <coughs> pardon me, some themes. Um. I <laughs> loved the business about the power of a certain kind of education. Mm. It seems that that's a theme throughout your book also. I mean, I'm, I, I made this note, but, and I remember, I think it was Louise Little who would get her kids back home from school and say, now, let me tell you what, what really happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, go, go. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I was just saying it's, it was crucial to all three women that they, something that was in common for them. You know, I celebrate a lot of their differences because that was also really important to me as right. black women were often reduced into categories and treated as if we're all the same, which a big part of our strength of our community is that we're incredibly different. There's beautiful diversity in the African diaspora. And so I focus a lot on those differences. But one thing that all three mothers had 
in common certainly was that they wanted their children to be well aware of what was happening in not only our country, but in the world and to let them know, especially when it came to anti-Blackness, that this was not the natural order of things, as Alberta put it, that we needed to change that while we were on this earth and all be a part of that change of helping people to see things more realistically. And of course, Alberta does this through her faith saying, this is not what God intended for us on this earth. And therefore we are a part of creating the reality that should have been um, in, in place all along. And they all teach them that you need to see what's happening though. You can't uh, allow yourself to be ignorant to the situation, to the realities of the nation, um, but you can't let that define you either. And you can't let that limit you from what you're gonna be able to accomplish if you have a different mindset where you're focused on faith and you're focused on the future and things that are yet to be realized, but that you're gonna have a role in, in bringing to life. So all three of them spend these different or use these different strategies to teach their children about this awareness. But Louise, I think very specifically, since I gave a shout out to Burtis in the last one, we can move to Louise on this one. She taught her children when they come, came back from school, she would say, here are newspapers from around the world. <laughs> and she would have them laying on the kitchen table and they all had to sit down and read them out loud to her. If they stumbled on any word that they didn't already know, she had a dictionary right next to them where they had to look up that word, say it out loud, and then start reading again from the different articles. And she thought this was really crucial for their understanding of their worth that they needed to know that they were part of something so much larger, not only this fight that was happening in the US, but was happening globally as well. Louise was born in Grenada. She spent time in Montreal, Canada before she met her husband and then traveled around the US spreading the message of Marcus Garvey. And so this was really an important part of how she educated her children. You need to know what's happening again, not only in our country, but what's happening abroad, how you fit into this. And don't allow anything that somebody tells you, especially in a school where you're educated mainly by white educators, that makes you think that you're any less than anybody else or that you're inferior to them. Remember everything I'm telling you. Remember this larger movement that you're a part of. It's a whole team effort from people around the world. And her children felt inspired by that. Her eldest son said that he never dealt with the notion that he was inferior simply because he was black, because his mother every single day reminded him, this is who you are. And this is, these are our people. And we should note in passing that right now, you and I are talking about the mother of Malcolm X. Yes, Louisa. Sorry, Malcolm X. <laughs> <laughs> just, just in case, because you and I are steeped in it right now. Exactly. Um, but I love that moment that you've just described. And when I read it, I thought, ah, the Howard Zinnification of history, because Howard Zinn did such a marvelous job. Interestingly enough, spoke, I taught at Spelman at first. Okay. And yeah. And, and he would just say, you know, history books and history classrooms are not giving you the real America. So we've got to get the real United States of America. And then I invented a new term, the anatubsification of history. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's what you're doing, Anna. I mean, you were saying, look at this history. Uh, I'm assuming, well, I know you're speaking to a black audience, 
And you're speaking to a white audience, predominantly white everybody, audience, too. Yeah. Everybody. Because white supremacists, the white supremacist consciousness, sometimes I call it the Confederate consciousness, mm -hmm. simply puts blinders on so that you cannot see the value of all of these contributions to history. And your heart breaks because there's so many people who didn't get to make their contribution uh, to history. Yeah. And I say that all the time. One of my experiences growing up, the privilege <clears throat> that my parents gave me was we traveled around the world. It was really important to them that we lived in several different countries, that we were exposed to again, the incredibly rich and beautiful diversity of the world, because they were afraid that so many people were afraid of difference. Um, you know, my mom is white from Washington. My dad is black African from Ghana. Um, and they experienced in their own relationship and the treatment that they received that people were really afraid of difference, that there was something that people thought was uncomfortable about admitting that we were different from each other and that people walked through life differently. And I think in the US, it's something that many of us are having a hard time with. And we see the remnants of that to this day, where we're not willing to say, this is history that's led to these differences. And we are treated very differently each day. And even my mother as a white woman knew that as her daughter, as a black child, I was going to be treated differently in this world. And had she not been able to recognize that or just openly say, this is true, I would have had a very different experience where I didn't feel fully seen in my identity or allowed to find the power in the difference of my experience and what each of us bring through those differences. And unfortunately, as a nation, we've really suffered as a result of not being willing to admit the treatment that each of us has received um, and the different communities that make up this incredible nation uh, but it's something that I hope this book does. It's a welcoming to say this book is for everybody. There are some universal themes that I think unite us in many ways. And there are other moments where it's okay for us to say this was different and this was not okay. And it still isn't okay that Black women and Black mothers are facing these hurdles, are carrying these burdens that others are not forced to carry. And it's a simple notion. And if more of us are okay with saying those things out loud and are willing to learn from those experiences, then I think there's healing and a potential for just revolutionary healing for our whole country. Oh, thanks for bringing in the issue of healing because the issue is the end of oppression. The issue is the end of injustice. The issue is that injustice anywhere, you know, is, I mean, it, it is threatening justice everywhere. Yeah. And it is that last point that you've just made. It's all of that. Okay, back to my notes. Um, <laughs> so, um, I, I, something that was really new for me and this, <clears throat> Your book has some moments that are just heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching, yeah. and you don't gloss over the pain. And we cannot look at the truth without dealing with our pain. And um, James Baldwin has this amazing quote about, you know, there's so many people if, uh, who are afraid to stop hating because underneath that, they would have to deal with their pain. Yeah. And yeah. that kind of pretty much it. But, um, this business of blaming mothers, blaming black mothers uh -huh. as being a Jezebel or a mammy or a welfare queen. 
and there are many other ways. But it gets at the whole erasure issue, which is just a central theme. And, and there's so many ways to erase the contribution and the presence of women mm-hmm. by both scapegoating and then caricaturing them in these ways. Yes, yes. It, it's, it's a big part of the dehumanizing treatment that many of us face with these different tropes, <laughs> um, but it's very specific to our Black community and Black womanhood. Um, and it's been very strategic to use these tropes like the Mammy, like the Jezebel, like the matriarch, like the welfare queen, and even the strong black woman trope and the angry black woman trope. Um, all of them are saying we are in some way less than human, in some way don't deserve the same protections, in some way don't deserve the same recognition as other human beings do. And so the book is entirely about addressing dehumanizing treatment and the ways in which Black women have claimed our humanity and created life, not only through birthing children, but through our activism and through our, through our art and through our passions. And Alberta and Bertus and Louise do that so beautifully long before they even become, you know, literal mothers. They're giving life to their communities in the ways in which they see themselves and form dreams for themselves and are passionate about their education and everything that they hope to accomplish that they don't yet know and what's going to happen with their families and with their descendants. But there is a part of just recognizing this constant pushback against that dehumanization through these tropes, through representations in the media, through what they might see um, in magazines or in the newspaper that represents them as if they were, again, less than the human beings who they knew they were. So I want to use that to say, and here I'm going to get a little preachy, but I'm going to preach to myself uh, as a white person mm-hmm. and hope that other white listeners can hear what I'm learning from you. And that is whenever you detect the use of one of these tropes that you've just listed, please say to yourself, the process of dehumanization is going on. Mm-hmm. And I am being deprived or I am depriving myself of seeing persons in their personhood. Um, I just, if we're going to move toward healing, if we're going to move toward dismantling systemic racism, if we are going to turn our backs on white supremacy, we've got to have those kinds of commitments to one another. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. So, um, oh, you're making my heart beat fast again. Um, so there's so much, but we have so little time. Um, I, I do, well, we'll come back to that. I, I want to now go and visit each one of these women. Um, we've mentioned all three. You've mentioned all three, and let's go a little deeper. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna save Mrs. King for the last because we at St. Luke's Episcopal Church are in this partnership with Ebenezer right now. So I, don't, I don't know if you got the word, yes. but we're, re- we're reading cast together yes. and we just had our third session and all sorts of stuff going on. And so we've got this personal relationship with the staff and the leadership of Ebenezer. So we'll go to Alberta King last. I love but, that. I just want to also say Isabel Wilkerson is one of my main inspirations. So I am so honored that my book is after hers. It's just so cool. <laughs> well, it's really amazing. And I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading her book and I've, I've finished your book 
And, um, you know, her, she's got these eight pillars of caste. And it's like, oh, Anna is illustrating every dog on one of those pillars. And it's like almost, I, I want to say, you all read these books together. Um, yeah, anyway. yeah, it's a good compliment for sure. <laughs> it's really, really powerful. So I, let's let's touch into Louise a little, a little more deeply. Malcolm X's mother. This whole business of her commitment to bouncing back, being unafraid, the bold proclamation of the value of Black lives, proud militancy, proud of her roots, and proud of her self-sufficiency. I mean, wow. She was incredible. She is one of those people who, you know, there's many of us who just love these revolutionary heroes who were brave and would fight no matter what. And everyone kind of loves that story. And if you don't know Louise Little, it's again shocking because she is one of these women who is courageous and really faces her fear head on and just wants to be an example of standing for yourself and standing for what you believe in, no matter how scary it can get, no matter the level of threats that are waged against you. And I think in her life, we also see that for Black women of their time, there weren't many other options. It was either you just keep bouncing back or you lose your life. This was really what it came down to. And so as much as we can celebrate that strength and that resilience, it's also to pay attention to the tragedy that she just had to keep going. Um, she didn't see any other way around it. And that really also should be quite heartbreaking for us as much as we admire her strength. It's terrible what she was forced to endure throughout her life. And, and then go on to mention the 25 years in, in a state hospital, please. It's so much. I mean, thus far we've introduced that she left Grenada and she's this freedom fighter, very excited to join this Marcus Garvey movement. And because of how amazing she was and that she wrote for the Negro World newspaper and she was a branch secretary um, in the Garvey movement, she was really well known. And so when she meets her husband, they're both activists and Marcus Garvey loves the fact that they're very willing to do whatever it takes. And so they're strategically sent to communities um, around the US who are responding to white supremacist violence. And they're there to further incite this, um, this notion that we can fight back. That's their kind of goal. And so they're persecuted everywhere they go by groups like the KKK and the Black Legion, which is a similar white supremacist group. Um, and they're told you need to stop disrupting our community. You need to stop you know, um, messing with the quote unquote good Negroes of our community. And the many attacks that I was speaking about and referencing are the fact that their house at one point is burned down. Um, Earl Little himself is murdered and the, his death is ruled an accident or a suicide. So Louise doesn't receive the supports that she deserves um, after losing her husband and she's raising eight children on her own. I'm sorry, seven children on her own before she has another. Um, and I misspoke earlier. Sorry, Burtis had nine children. I said eight. <laughs> the two of them, I sometimes switch. But Louise Little then, um, after trying to take care of her children, uh, these white welfare workers are coming into her home. And many Black women have spoken about this experience that 
when you need welfare, something that, again, as a citizen of the United States, you should be entitled to, um, you feel quite judged as these people enter your home and say, oh, well, you're not, you're not a very good mother or judge you for how many children you have, or will say that you're some kind of welfare queen and doing this just to, you know, trick the system, whatever. So this is something that Louise definitely felt she was experiencing, this discrimination, and she's this proud Garveyite. And she hates the fact that they're treating her this way. So she speaks up against this. And because of her resistance, there is a white male doctor who is asked to diagnose her. Um, all of these different workers feel that she is too resistant. She's not allowing them to do the work that they wanna do. She's not a good mother, they say. And this white male doctor diagnoses her with dementia praecox based off of, and this is verbatim in his notes to the state, he says that she's imagining being discriminated against. So a white male doctor can say about a black immigrant woman, she's imagining being discriminated against. And that was enough to put her away for 25 years of her life against her will in a mental institution. And because her loved ones, her family members were all her children, they weren't old enough to advocate for her or say, we have a home where she could live safely and the state takes her away from them and her children are then forced to live in foster care as a result. And here comes the re response and condition. She comes out whole, resistant, energetic, determined. Yeah. And then before we leave, and our, our time is, I mean, this business about, there's another theme where you talk about passing things down. Yes. And she passes down so much wisdom to her children. And I simply wanted to add to the re-education stuff after school. She would take her kids, you said, to different religious experiences and say, now it's important for you to develop your own relationship with God. Mm -hmm. She was very much a spiritual person. Very much so, very much so. And that was really important to her that they had an understanding again of something larger than themselves, um, that they were not alone, that they were doing important work, spiritual work um, in transforming systems around them and in keeping this awareness alive of what was happening day in and day out to their people. And that was crucial to her that they carry that with them. And it's amazing because you see such remnants of Malcolm X. And so even if, you know, you're on just those first chapters, and I think some people will go into the book saying, I want to just know about Malcolm X and James Baldwin, right. and I want to know about Martin Luther King Jr. Right, 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 right. But from the beginning, you're going to start to see, exactly. oh, wow. And they're not even, you know, until the sixth or seventh chapters where you get to meet the, meet the boys and meet the men. So you're going to see how all of these experiences are leading to what they become known for. I love that. So um, Bertus and then Alberta, and then we have to say goodbye. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, um, we've talked about how crucial this love business was from her. Um, one of the wonderful quotations said, somebody said she had this incredible ability to forgive, mm -hmm. which must come out of her commitment to love. Yeah. Um, I and think then, she also just had this perspective that it was harder for you to not forgive than it was for anybody else. You know, I yeah. think we think when we're not forgiving that in some way we're punishing somebody or, you know, we're, it's some kind of like vengeance to not extend forgiveness. And Bertus 
was always teaching her children that if you have hatred in your heart, it's really only hurting you. It's keeping you from being able to find healing, to move forward. Um, and so when James Baldwin's stepfather is passing away, um, and he really has formed very intense hatred of this man who has not only abused him, but also abused his mother. Um, so it makes sense, of course, you know, we can understand why James Baldwin did not want to say goodbye to his stepfather or this man that had waged terror on him. And Berta says to him, you need to go and forgive him before he dies. And of course, he's a good son. He listens to his mother. He goes and visits him on his deathbed. And he writes about how important that was for him. And this is where this quote, this famous quote comes from, where he says, you know, beyond that hatred is that pain. And I didn't want to experience that pain, um, but I needed to let go of the hatred so that I could move forward. And he's grateful that his mother has forced him to find forgiveness so that he can heal. Otherwise, he'd be analyzing all of these instances from his childhood for years and years without thinking of how you move forward from that. And before we go to Alberta King, she, uh, Bertus really was a person of letters yes. and arts and theater and reading and all of that stuff. And it's just fun to feel the osmosis in which Jimmy Baldwin was raised. It's an important thing to understand about her because had she maybe herself not been such a creative or known what it felt like to not be able to pursue this creative passion just because of what life brought to her and she was no longer able to you know, think about dreaming of performance and instead was transitioning to taking care of her children and surviving day in and day out, she might not have supported James Baldwin's creativity in the same way. So it's important to understand this was a passion of hers as well. This was a talent of hers. We have to also think of the context. They are a poor Black family in Harlem. He's her eldest son. He probably could have had, you know, a career that maybe had more money that was guaranteed, um, maybe harder work, but in the sense of what it would require from his body. But she said he needed to write. And she said that over and over again. There's a clip of her in this documentary called The Price of the Ticket. It's a tiny, tiny clip. And it's the only one I ever saw of Berta speaking. But the reporter asks her, um, did you know he was going to become famous? <laughs> and she says, I just knew he had to write. She cuts her off and says, I just knew he had to write. And this is really crucial to understanding Burtis that she believes no matter what, he needs to follow his passion. It can't only be about money. There's a part of his survival that has to do with living what he's meant to live and doing what he's meant to do. But we have to remember, we can't take for granted that James Baldwin becomes this successful writer where he can support his family with his writing. That was not a guarantee. And, and you just know that that package of her saying he had to write was a total unconditional acceptance of everything that he was, including his being a queer black man. Yes, yes. And it's something that, you know, I never found any letter where she directly addresses his sexuality, but there was this all encompassing acceptance of him. He introduced her to everybody who was important to him. He brought them to her home. So I think the fact that there's not this clear moment where she says something about it, and she does voice her concerns in her letters. The things that she was most concerned about was that he smoked and that he was a drinker and that he cussed sometimes. Those were the things that concerned her, but she never says anything about who he chooses to love. Um, and I think she was really ahead of her time in the sense that she was just about full acceptance and 
it's it goes along with everything we've already said about her definitely so now we have to go to sweet auburn uh we need to go to to what i call holy holy ground in atlanta yes that place between the new ebenezer church and the ebenezer church that the williams family just and the fact that they came in and there were 14 people, her father and mother, right? Yes, very small. <laughs> very small. And you look at the place now. Yes. Just, um, and also, she gets Christianity right. Mm -hmm. You know, she and her, her parents knew that the Christian gospel is about justice. That's part of the gospel, as well as getting your soul nourished. Yes. Can you speak about that? just commitment to justice. Absolutely. And I think it's important to remember this, that in history, we often say that Ebenezer Baptist Church was Reverend Martin Luther King Sr.'s church. And in some ways, yes, that's true. But the history started long before that. This is actually Alberta King's, Alberta Williams' parents' church um, that she was raised in. And she was the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist before she becomes the first lady of Ebenezer. And so even in changing our record of what the truth is about this incredibly important institution in American and world history, it actually really begins with Alberta's parents who believe that faith cannot be faith without social justice, that you cannot say you're a religious leader without fighting for the oppressed, without fighting for the poor, without thinking about bringing again, God's vision that we are all equal and making that a reality on this earth as much as you possibly can while you're here. And this is what they raise Alberta to believe. And they take her with them to marches. They lead boycotts. They're some of the founding members of the NAACP. They both speak to audiences. This is Jenny Celeste, her mother as well, MLK Jr.'s grandmother, thought it was really important to focus on women in organizing and women in the church. So this is, again, very radical and revolutionary for her time to be this feminist leader in the church. And this is what Alberta grows up seeing and knowing to be the way to create change. And even if you're able to gain privileges like education, which Alberta was able to do because her parents were also well-educated, she says, you can't see yourself as being any better than anybody else. Instead, you see this as an opportunity to again, contribute to something larger than me. This is for my people. This is for my community. And she carries this with her when she meets her husband, who when she meets him, he even describes himself as this green country boy. Um, he's considered illiterate. He was not given the same access to education that she was. And she helps him get into Morehouse. This is, so this is again, MLK Jr.'s maternal lineage, the Morehouse, the Spellman. This is on her side of the family. She goes to her dad and says, I, I love this man. I wanna help him on his journey, helps him get into Morehouse. And she's an educator. She's trained to be a teacher. And so he goes from being considered illiterate to then graduating from one of the most incredible institutions in our country, only a couple of years later after meeting this woman. It's something we have to understand because even Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., his autobiography is a love letter to his wife. And he called her his bunch of goodness, which he shortened to bunch. He was well aware that he could not have been who he became without her, without her training, without her saying, you know, we're a team and I'm going to support you in this. And using these same lessons of, again, marches, boycotts, 
um, NAACP training and thinking about education as a path forward when she's raising her children. And she just deserves so much more credit. Everybody in Atlanta should know Alberta King's story. Everybody in our nation should know her story, especially with how much her son has been celebrated, how much her husband has been celebrated, and neither of them could have done what they did without her. She's a force, force of nature. And you think about three generations, her parents, then her, her and Daddy King, and then her son, yes. and then her uh, second son. And her daughter, Christine. And, yeah. Incredible. And she's still alive today. And she has witnessed. I mean, I'm surprised that Christine is not again. It's not about fame, but about being celebrated and people knowing your importance and really holding your story dear while she's still on earth. I hope she receives even more celebration and that we ask her even more about her wisdom because talk about the tragedy that she has witnessed and her ability to find hope and keep faith and find forgiveness. She not only witnessed her brother um, who was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. She not only sees the loss of her second brother uh, who was found drowning in his pool suspiciously, which we still to this day don't know what happened. And he was also very active in the civil rights movement, but she also saw her mother murdered in their church, in Ebenezer Baptist Church. And again, that's something that's not spoken about enough. She lost her life doing what she loved, uh, playing the organ and being in community with her church members. This was what Christine lived through. And she, this woman, again, talk about a force of nature. Um, I want more about her before, before her time is up on this earth. Yeah. And then Coretta has such a, Coretta Scott King has such an impact. And I'm just thinking of Yolanda and Bernice. Uh, yes. receiving all of that, you know, from Alberta. So uh, we're, we have to close, but I, I, I really would appreciate your telling the story of what happened with Martin Luther King Jr. and his childhood friends, mm. whose father owned the store in the neighborhood and kind of what happened then and then what she said to him when he came home and told her. Yeah, and it's it's a heartbreaking story, but unfortunately one that many children of color could probably relate to um, this moment where you realize you actually aren't the same and you're not gonna be treated the same. Um, you are the same, but you're not gonna be treated the same. And this happened for young uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He was friends with the kids who, the owners of the corner grocery store, these were their children. They'd become very close friends because you know they lived in proximity to each other. Um, but there came a certain time where the parents, the owners of the store no longer felt that it was appropriate that the children be friends um, as they were growing up and really felt the need to teach them what they saw as the reality of their world, that Martin was less than them, that he could not be treated the same way that they were, that they needed to understand that they were supreme. These were white supremacist notions. And he's heartbroken. You know, obviously this is a change for him. He wants to spend time with his friends. He doesn't understand. Nothing's changed about him. Why has the world decided that something needed to change in their relationship. And he goes home to Alberta and to Daddy King, so mom and Daddy King, and he sits with her and he's sad. He's not understanding, he's confused. And Alberta says to him, again, this is not the natural order of things. She explains what's connected to this in terms of slavery, in terms of the civil war, 
in terms of where they're finding themselves as Jim Crow reigns supreme, um, but also says, this is not the natural order. You are as good as anyone. And it's something that Martin Luther King Jr. carries forward. He mentions it quite a lot later in speeches where he says this is crucial for Black mothers to be the ones that allow their children to not only hear these words, but understand what that means because of the ways in which they love them and hold them dearly and say, you know, this world isn't fair, but you are as good as anyone. And I think with Alberta King, Bertus Baldwin, Louise Little, they each said, we will do our part in transforming the world around you. We will do our part to not accept these circumstances, but now you also are joining us in this fight. And what is your contribution going to be? And it's just inspiring. It's also tragic that this burden has to be placed on Black parents and Black children. But unfortunately, like we said earlier, there is no other choice. And, and I, I, I must say, there is a strain, there is a legacy of Christianity in the predominantly Black experience in America. Yes. Distinct from the strain of Christianity in the predominantly white experience. Yeah. And the Black experience is, said, is saying, this is not the natural order. Segregation, lynching, slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration, not the natural order. And the roots of this one, I say with great pain, is that God designed this mm. and God ordered this. And there's no resistance. There's no proclamation of justice and nonviolence. I mean, that's kind of two Americas. How do you yeah, deal yeah. with that? You, it is scary. And we, on January 6th, we had a convention mm. of that white supremacy coming together. Um, at the Capitol. I mean, you're no stranger to white religion and white America. No, we're what seeing it very, very clearly today. To this day, we see that. And in some ways, it's getting worse in the sense that even those who were very supportive of Donald Trump used their Christianity as a justification for that. And it's heartbreaking because we see an incredible divide, especially for those of us who are believers and who are Christian, to see us as being direct opposition to people who are using the same Bible, who are using the same word, but are skewing it in such gross ways. And I mean, it's something that even it's quite personal for me whenever I go back to Ghana and, you know, we, if we have visitors, we'll take them to see the slave castles. And one of the things that's so gross is that there's these levels to each slave castle on the bottom level are the dungeons where slaves are kept in these awful conditions. Um, just absolutely the worst atrocities that you can imagine. And then just a couple levels up is where church is being held at the very same time. And it's right above where these terrible, devilish things are happening. And how do you even justify the two in your mind? I don't, I don't see how people do this. I don't understand. But it's something that those of us who I think see, like Alberta did, this is not the natural order of things. This is not what God intended for us. This is not 
how we are supposed to interpret the word, then we need to continue to make that clear. Um, because for those who are not Christian, it makes us look very confused, very divided. Um, and it's unfortunate that religion and the Bible have been used as tools of war and tools of violence. So I promise, last question. <laughs> so Anna, where do we go from here? Oh gosh, it's such a good question. I do think though there's so much, the book ends with a lot in terms of policy and how we think about each of our roles in this larger fight for securing freedoms and securing equity um, for our country and for all of our citizens. And on one hand, personally, we all again have to go back to this notion of recognizing difference, celebrating difference, being aware of the different treatment that each of us has received in this nation and are continuing to receive. And one way where that becomes so obvious is when we look at policies and issues that are impacting, let's say, Black women and Black mothers specifically, that are not impacting others. When we think about the Black maternal health crisis, for example, where whether you're educated or not, whether you have access to money or not, or even fame, you are four times more likely than your white counterpart to die in pregnancy or in childbirth. This is what I mean. This is a difference. It's a very clear difference. And if we're not willing to say that that's different, how are we going to address it? How are we going to think about the bias that's playing into this awful, awful tragedy that Black women continue to face? How do we think about the fact that with this pandemic, so many women were forced to leave the labor or to leave their work and leave their jobs? And most of them were women of color, Black and Latino women. This is a difference that we have to be willing to admit in order for us to address the issues where Black women and Latina women are clearly not being given as much support or nets to catch them. So how do we fix some of those gaps? We can think about per perhaps a universal basic income, which was something that Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. cared deeply about. We can think about a universal childcare system where there's quality childcare for each of our children. Maybe it's universal preschool where everybody's able to start at the same age with the same resources. Maybe it's addressing gun laws where we think about not only something that could have prevented Malcolm X's murder as well as MLK Jr.'s assassination, but that of Alberta King as well. We need to be protected by our nation. So the last part of the book is entirely based on policy moving forward. What can transform when we put Black women at the center of our analysis and are very willing to admit difference. And then when we can heal the different treatment, how all of our differences bring strength to our country. It's, it's a tall order, but one that I definitely think is possible and one that we are very much moving towards, I think. I'm very optimistic and hopeful. I think a lot has changed. We've made lots of progress. Um, and I think if I said the opposite, I wouldn't be doing Alberta Burtis and Louise Justice. They did work on behalf of all of us. Their children did work on behalf of all of us. And we're continuing something that they set in place and that their grandparents and their ancestors before them set in place as well. And it's something that I think gives me a lot of power. I feel like we're part of something much larger. Anna Malika Tubbs. Thank you so very much for Thank packing you for so me. much. Again, everybody, 
you got to get this book. <laughs> three, the three mothers, how the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped a nation at Cathedral Bookstore right now and at Karis Books. Uh, all of you from Ebenezer who are watching, please, please, please. Oh, I'm so grateful. Ble oh, and blessings on your family. It's growing. Thank you. Yes, we have another baby on the way in August. And you're moving from the Bay Area down to Los Angeles. Yes, that's blessings. what I'm doing the rest of today. <laughs> I'm just packing. <laughs> blessings, 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 my friend. Thank you. Thank you Take so care. much. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, everybody, for joining us. Bye-bye.